0: Hey, welcome to the Mostly Skateboarding Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Kigongo, and I'm joined by Jason from Frozen and Carbonite to talk with Jacob Rosenberg about video preservation. For those who don't know, Jacob filmed many of skateboarding's most iconic moments while working alongside the late, great Mike Tunaski at Plan B Skateboards. As a filmer, he's been witness to history and also a massive part of it. Jacob, off top, thank you for coming on the show. Now. We're just going to dive right into it. I am absolutely sure that you have a massive collection of tapes from those times and probably even stuff from now. What are you doing to preserve them?
1: It's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why I was so excited to have a conversation about it, because I think that these conversations are essential in, in essence to all creative platforms in which things exist in an analog form and as things transition towards a digital form and, and now it is purely digital from you know for all intents and purposes it's really integral to have some conversations otherwise things will disappear and they will and data video signals will not be able to be retrieved anymore but to to answer your question you know i have an abundance of tapes probably you know somewhere around 500 to 600 tapes and I was I was fortunate enough when I was making the documentary on Danny Way, I was able to digitize the majority of of my archive and and actually start that preservation process back in 2010. I, I actually started digitizing things before then in 2007 when I connected with Patrick O'Dell as I was supporting kind of the archival needs of Epically Latered because I liked what he was doing and just wanted to share that stuff with him. And, and that was kind of the first time after I'd filmed that stuff where I really went back and looked, you know, in 2007 and started realizing, you know, sort of what I had. And I think as as time passes, the, the value of those things and the interest in those things, I think, increases and de- decreases. But the value of preserving it you know, is clearly, a, I think, essential culturally.
0: So, Jacob, for those who don't know, what do you have? We got to know. <laughs> you know, both Jason and I are huge, yeah. world blind, one one Plan B kids, super world nerds, yeah. Jason especially, but there might be folks who they might recognize your name, but they're not quite aware about your contributions to skateboarding. Never mind your work in film and in technology.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate. You know, my my story, as I understand it, as I get older and I look back, I emerged at a, at a collision of you know, in technology, at a at a at a, at a kind of pivot point in technology. You know, when cameras were actually affordable to be in people's hands and you could actually go out and film people, you know, prior to the late 80s, you know, you would just film someone with Super 8 and that that just gets super expensive at a certain point. But, you know, if you have a videotape and you have a camera, you could just keep recording over and over and over again and you would have it. So I, I say that to sort of give people a sense of that my time when I started filming skateboarding and I started filming skateboarding in about 1988. And um, really, really went deep in it in 1989. And, and then 1990 is kind of the pivot point, the, the, the big point for me when I really blossomed. And I, I filmed for um, Useless Wooden Toys in uh, 1990. And I filmed for Video Days um, in late 1990. So I have some tapes, New Deal skaters, you know, Rick Iveseta, Justin Gerard, Danny Sargent got Doug Sains, you know, a lot of those guys, uh, from that. And then I have a couple of my own, you know, personal grail tapes, um, filming with Mark, Jason guy and Rudy and Gabriel in a- Los Angeles for video days. And then after video days, things, you know, got really interesting for me. And I started to procure my own editing equipment and I would started to be, I started to get hired to film videos and film skaters on a more regular basis. And then I, I edited and filmed, a decent amount of the Dogtown video, which was called DTS, the video. And then after that, this is now 1991. And then I uh, filmed and edited the majority of the Think video, the first Partners in Crime video. So all those Think skaters, that's that footage. And then that transitioned into just being full-time for Plan B. So that's you know questionable virtual reality and then secondhand smoke. And secondhand smoke, I don't really have a lot of footage in. I have all of Danny's, you know, vert stuff that he did, the, you know, the backside ollie uh, kickflip and the caballerial heel flip on the ramp. We filmed that together uh, while I was editing. And then I filmed Jeremy's pop shove pivot grind, 5-0 grind down hubba. He came up to San Francisco during the summer, but the majority of um, secondhand smoke was filmed by Mike Trenaski and then Sloshbach and, and uh, Dan Sturt. So the high stuff uh, that I have is, is, you know, questionable and virtual stuff. And I just had a really weird knack for being with some of the guys when they were doing stuff. Mikey and I filmed just tons of lines together. Um, obviously just had tons and tons of footage at EMB, but, but I was really fortunate to be with Rodney when he landed a couple insane tricks. So his uh, Casper slide in questionable him and I just went out on a mission. That was actually one of the, you can tell in the editing that it was like added on to his part. And it was, we filmed it right before the premiere. He finally landed it. And then, uh, is kickflip dark slide or half flip dark slide at carlsbad high we filmed that a lot a lot of other stuff but but that's a kind of broad overview of of where i touch those people and those skaters at that time and of course people beyond plan b when they're at sessions and stuff like that you know
2: yeah jacob jason here quick question about that timeline was there a venture Mm -hmm. video somewhere in there was that footage just kind of mixed in with yeah dog kind of thing because like a lot of those guys were like on yeah,
1: the, I I love that you bring that up. You know, that's like a great skate nerd project. You know, Greg Greg Carroll was like a huge advocate for me when I was a kid, and um, you know, like everyone in our era, we were all searching for belonging and approval and to be liked and to be a part of something. And Greg really liked me and really kind of gave me a chance and, and put me in front of all the all those think skaters and and the venture skaters. So what happened was he was like. Let's make a venture video because um, he saw me filming the Dogtown guys, and a lot of those Dogtown guys rode for venture. So, you know, in theory, kind of like when I filmed Cardiel for the Dogtown video, I was kind of filming Cardiel for the venture video. Right. And we were just like, we're just going to make this venture video. And what had happened was the guys at High Speed saw that I could, you know, hang out with these guys and I could get footage. I'd go out for a day and I'd come back with, you know, a lot of footage. So, I'm sort of filming all these guys. It starts to expand more than Dogtown. And, and what, what happened with Greg is he had all these sponsor me tapes from everyone that he was sponsoring for Venture. So I was like, well, you know, I'll just edit the sponsor me tapes. If they're really long, I'll cut them down. And then I'll edit parts of each of the skaters that I film. And, you know, I made this god 45 minute or hour long Venture video, which is like a mishmash of all the sponsor me tapes of everyone. And then all this footage that I was filming of those guys. And I think at some point, I think I'm not sure if it was Jamie Owens, but at some point someone, you know, digitized I, I, I mean, I have this stuff digitized, but right. I shared like a, a clip with someone of it. And there's just some amazing skating in that time. It still is fun to watch.
2: Sick. And um now like a more macro question about Yeah, yeah, of course.
1: I love macro.
2: That, that kind of thing. Um, you know, skateboarding in terms of, of like American culture. Yeah, Like, I don't think overall it gets the respect that it deserves. Because if you think about it,
0: mm-hmm.
2: things that America has created after World War II, there's, like, rock and roll, like, jeans, rap, mm-hmm. and skate or hip-hop, and skateboarding. Like, that's it. Yeah. I was able to go to the Smithsonian about yep. a month ago. Shout out Betsy Gore and mm-hmm. everyone down there. And they're trying to archive skateboarding. Yes. Yeah, it's weird. It's crazy. It's just, like, them two. Just, like, two people. Trying to like preserve you know skateboarding culture (laughs) in that uh, that place or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's on brand for us. Yeah, that. uh, And their their whole thing is like you know stuff degrades, everything degrades over time. Like magnetic tape, of course. Yeah. Even like plastic, you know what I mean. A big part of Mm -hmm. you know our thing is you know the when you get a video, there's like the the tape, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean, the 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 Mm -hmm. color of the actual cassette the box yeah, art yeah, and everything. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So like, is there, or do you know of a way or a better way to preserve all that stuff? Like as it degrades,
1: you know, it's, 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 it's a good question. I think that the, the the, there's two parts to your question. One is like, you know, an American cultural contribution to the world. And, and, you know, I would put skateboarding like next to jazz music because they're sort of like real pure creative expressions that sort of like, you know, one plus one equals three. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that what's lost in our ability to see it is our ability to understand it. Right. So when, you know, a lot of people have trouble getting into jazz music at certain times in their life because they just probably never hear it live or actually like remove enough noise to actually hear what's going on or to, excuse me, I should say to feel what's going on because you have to feel it. And I think that one of the things that happened and I'm not trying to push the conversation in this direction But, you know, one of the things that Stacy did was he created a feeling in the videos that he was making so that you actually tangibly felt like what it was to be a skateboarder. And I believe, you know, the videos that Mike Ternaski made and some of that that I was a part of, you felt skateboarding presented to you in a different way. I think we need to be talking about skateboarding in the same conversation that we talk about jazz music. Um, that we talk about these, you know, sort of creative expressions of the self that emerge in very weird places that expand through very untraditional means and ultimately create mediums and media that allows it to, you know, to propagate and to be captured into a zeitgeist. And that, and when you look at the adoption of skateboarding and you look at you know, why I think it's such an important thing to study and to actually start to have scholarly conversations about is you actually see like the growth of something that really is incomparable to anything else. You know, oh, we don't have, we, we take photographs of ourselves. Oh, we need magazines. So we make magazines. Oh, we're going to, you know, control the manufacturing, control. skateboarding has this total inclusive, you know, vertical integration, you know, type of thing where everything is under, you know, one roof. And I think that in itself incredibly powerful and special to analyze and understand from an anthropological standpoint and then from a preservation standpoint the second part of your question i think all of media has actually outlasted um what everyone estimated that it would i remember when cds came out and people said "CD, oh the shelf life of a cd is like 10 or 20 years it's like it's 35 years later or whatever and my tribe called quest cd plays just great You know, the challenge is finding a CD player. Um, Now, VHS is a very different medium, right? So the videos that you're talking about that we grew up on were on VHS tapes. And what that is, is uh, a, a magnetic strip that you record a video signal and an audio signal onto that tape. And that tape is obviously made of a material that over time will inevitably degrade. And I think people are very surprised that a lot of VHS tapes still play just fine. A lot of DVDs still play just fine. Now, in 20 or 30 years from now, will that be the case? Probably not, right? Probably these things at like 50 to 75 years, they you know become brittle and some of the tapes when you go to digitize them that's what happens to them the ma- the magnetized elements will just simply start falling off the surface or the surface itself just disintegrates so when you're doing some of the preservation and archiving of old tapes a lot of the places that digitize them will say to you just so you know if the tape breaks like we're not liable for that destruction so the primary thing to do right now would be to digitize that to a digital file and, you know, d- 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 we could get super nerdy at this point. This is, could start to dovetail into my Adobe, um, you know, technology post-production pedigree. But a digital file is as good as the hard drive that it's on. And, you know, there's no such thing as a hard drive that w- won't crash. Like, yeah, I mean, hard you know, hard so, drives,
2: I think they have moving parts too, right?
1: Yep, correct. And then yeah, solid yeah. state drives, if you lose the data, there's no recovery of them. Right. None. So, you know. The, the craziest thing is that, you know, how you backup data on a hard drive, you use a tape, you, yep. you use an LTO tape. So it's like, it, it's just, a, it's a real conundrum. And I think ultimately, like, I think, you know, cloud storage for these things is probably the right thing to do or physical media. But at the end of the day, you know, the best way to preserve a moving image is a film print. <laughs> like this is a medium that was designed to, you know, to last a hundred plus years um and it's a medium where you, you could project it that's a, that of course is like totally irrelevant to anyone you know who has the budget to do these things and, and make these works to transfer stuff to film or to lto tape but the long and short of this to digitize it you know to a file format uh, and save it to multiple hard drives
0: so jacob you've actually touched upon something and I, I would love to i feel like we could talk about yeah. several things number one uh, sure, the sure. NBA playoffs, but the other one is you know you spoke about <laughs> Adobe. You we you know Jacob and I uh for the listeners Jacob and I actually got a chance to meet at the Stoked Sessions Academic Skate Conference down at San Diego State University. It was great fun. And uh, Jacob, you talked about the influence of the work that was happening at Adobe, and I went to Adobe Max back in 2014, and I got to see a, yeah. uh, a talk by one of the engineers who helped pioneer the waveform, the, the, the foundation yeah. of, of modern digital music, the reason why we're able to do this podcast. And yeah. I, I want you to paint a picture, not just of Silicon Valley, but the Bay Area in the late 80s and 1990s, because especially for our younger listeners, the world was very different, and that particular part of California was super different too. Yeah. And the reason, yeah. about, the reason I ask about that is, this ties back to an earlier point you made, about skate videos. Skate videos are time capsules of yes. architecture, of cities, of streetscapes, mm-hmm. of people, of styles, of haircuts, all of these things. Yeah. But you know, yeah. for an area that has created such tremendous pop cultural influence, you know, over the last 50 years, I mean, paint a picture for us what it was like growing up there and what it was like really coming of age and finding your creative lane. At a time where Silicon Valley was really starting to blow up in the in the national consciousness
1: yeah it's, it's, it's interesting I, I think as, as you were saying all those things about skate videos, the things that I think of is they're like skateboard videos are taste bombs right they 're like taste containers and they kind of capture the taste you know and the uh, you would know the French word for it, but the of the moment right that you know they, they kind of capture the now, but for me you know I think i 've always felt very Strange is the wrong word, and I fault my lack of scholarly reading with my vocabulary. But I've always felt a particular thing about growing up in Palo Alto. When I did, it it was an extraordinary place. It also had incredible, you know, wealth disparities, particularly when you look at East Palo Alto. And at the same time, it kind of had this sense of opportunity, you know, that was sort of like on the horizon. So. I don't know the right comparison of a town or a city today, but I can tell you that Palo Alto was like was nothing like what it is today. And people will say, oh, it's nothing like what it was when I was growing up. But to paint a picture of it when I was growing up, you know, half of downtown Palo Alto was shuttered buildings. There was, you know, drug use and a little bit of danger In certain places, there was a sort of sense of like an old guard that was looking at these young skateboarders running around and really just disgusted, you know, by their behavior and by that sort of like radical expression. But at the same time, there was an amazing photography shop, Keeble and Shucket, you know, Fry's Electronics, like one of the first places where you could just go and buy any type of hardware, any type of equipment or anything like that, like that was right around the corner, you know, and Santa Clara right, is where the semiconductor was invented, right? The silicon chip was invented in downtown Palo Alto. So there was this sense of like, a, a history where things were born, and, um and where there was potential, but I wasn't aware of it, from the standpoint of like, oh, I'm from Palo Alto, I'm going to make it, you know, I think it was when I was older, I realized like, oh, being middle class from Palo Alto means you're just way more privileged than the majority of people in this country. But growing up there, you, you only know what you're exposed to. Um, and I think one of the great things about skateboarding was it, it it exposed me to so much more diversity in the world and so much more of like of a dynamic, you know, vibe and feeling. So, you know, getting a video camera when I was 16, there was a place to go to get that video camera and you could know what the real was. You know, when I was, I was photographing for a French skateboard magazine. So I started making money at a pretty young age, um, selling my photographs and then I would buy video equipment. So I bought a Canon a one digital, which was like the top of the line, high eight camera to film on. It was sort of the precursor to the VX, uh, you know, that everyone loved, but it was the prior you know, generation, it was high eight. And I went to the camera shop and was able to order that directly. So I think that there's an access or a feeling like these new modern things are right there because of the fact that Palo Alto had such a rich technology underpinning. But you didn't really feel it as as something substantial until the mid 90s, right? So when I'm growing up in 80, 88, 89, 90, 91, 92, it's still not like Adobe's not like this big thing. But then when, when my mentor, Mike Ternasky, passed away, I had befriended his brother and knew him, but him and I, his brother Joe, became incredibly close. And Joe was one of the original engineers on Adobe Illustrator. And they, were working, they had a program called Adobe Premiere. And this is 1994. And Joe says to me, Jake, you should be a tester for Adobe because you know how to edit. And all I had done was tape to tape linear editing on three quarter inch decks and VHS decks and and high eight. So, you know, at a very early age, I was building an editing system to edit video on. And I was, and then I started digitizing my high eight tapes and making skate videos, you know, on a computer at a really, really early on. And it just felt natural. It just felt natural to be like curious and to chase something down, you know, so so that, that that was that moment and and there there was something in the water. I have a, a lot of contemporaries that I grew up with that have done amazing things. You know, of course Andrew Huberman, you know, Dr. Andrew Huberman has his incredible podcast and he was a skater that I grew up with. He would be with me a, a, a lot. Wait, he skates in San Francisco and filming. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. oh wow. Oh, Andrew, <laughs> yeah, Andrew's like a yeah, I mean that's that's like one of the homies from the crew. You know, he's a couple years younger than me and you know, when I would go film Mike Carroll, I'd be like, Hey Andy, do you want to come up to San Francisco with me for the day? And he would just jump in the car and join me. But there's there's just a lot of movers and shakers and people who who have done great things that came out of that that time in that moment. Christian Cooper, who's deep in skateboarding, an incredible artist. You know, he went to my high school. Our families were friends. I mean, he actually got me into skateboarding when I was very young. It's it, it was a special place. And you know, there's a different history to it than sort of how it's known today.
0: All right. So uh, forgive me because I don't remember the freeway that connects uh, Palo Alto, takes you out of Silicon Valley and into the city. Um, and I will use the city to refer to San Francisco, whereas normally I would use it to refer yeah, that's it to fine. New York. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah that's once fine. again. It is the city.
0: Yeah. Once again, paint a picture for the people. <laughs> yeah. You're leaving the burbs. You're like, Andy, get in the whip. Let's go. <laughs> what music you putting yeah. on? What is it like when you're coming in to go meet up with, say, Mike Carroll and so many of the... Heavy hitters who raised us. I mean, you documented an era that that raised all of us 1990s street skaters. But paint a picture because, again, there's people who they just don't know or they were too young. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, okay, so, you know, let's say 1990, you know, maybe I have that first Ghetto Boys record on tape with all the Scarface samples, you know, uh, or it's 91 is that the UMCs, like, you know, really listening to a ton of hip hop, some bad religion. This probably predates hieroglyphics if it's 1990. But that's really kind of the heyday of those EMB sessions was 90, 91. So I'm, I'm in high school. I had, you know, I think my junior year, I had six classes. Um, so I'd get out after sixth period. And I had uh, access to the old family uh, Volvo station wagon. And I would get out of school. And I would jump in the station wagon, you know, around 210 or something. And I'd just drive north, head out Page Mill Road, uh, get onto 280 north, which is to this day still one of the most beautiful freeways in the country. I mean, it's absolutely spectacular. And they just haven't developed anything. And if you're there at the right time, the fog is coming over from the Pacific Ocean. It's just spectacular. And I would just barrel up 280 um, up to Daly City. And Mikey lived in this you know, sort of like, uh, what, what do they call those cookie cutter houses? It was just that every house looked the same, you know, on these sprawling blocks. And, uh, you know, depending when I would get up to him, you know, he would be waking up or he would have been up. You know, I think when we first started filming together, he was still going to school, but then my senior year when I had even less classes and I was cutting classes, you know, I'd get up there a lot earlier and I'd land at his house. I'd pull up to the front of his house. There'd still be that sort of moisture in the air. And, uh, go walk up his stairs and give a knock on the door and he'd just be like what's up and he was never ready Um, you would always sit on the couch and 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 wait for him to get ready and I'd watch a skate video that he had or if I brought a tape for him I would show it to him you know usually if I was filming someone and I got a trick or we did stuff in the session I would immediately transfer it and make a cut down of it and like bring those tapes that was sort of a way that I asserted myself into a lot of relationships was I just filmed somebody, even if I didn't know him. And then I would send them a tape or send them prints. And then those people would be like, this kid's rad. You know, like I, I filmed with him and I got this tape and then they can show their friends the tape and all that stuff. And, and that really worked for me in terms of creating that network of people that I was connecting with. But we would sit there for a little bit and then he'd finally be like, all right, let's go. He would be ready. And then we'd get in the car. And Mikey usually had a tape of music that he wanted to listen to. So when he would get in the car, he would put his tape in. It was usually great. You know, it was, you know, something of the moment. I, I, I recently found all my cassette tapes from that era. And uh, they're, they're not fresh in my head right now. But if you get, you know, I could follow up with you and send you some photos of like of what was what was on rotation then. And we would either we'd either stop at FTC if he needed to get anything on the way into the city um, or we'd go straight to EMB. And then we'd go straight to EMB. I'd park he would kind of sit there and socialize for a little bit. If someone was skating and wanted to film, I would just start filming them. I would just start rolling around and start getting other tricks while Mikey was kind of getting settled or, and then he would, he would skate and I wouldn't pull out the camera right away. It would be like, he would skate and he'd be like, Hey, let's film this. And then I'd kind of know what we were trying to do. And then he would either land it or he would either get super stressed. And then I would change directions and start filming someone else. And then, you know, it start getting dark. He would either, you know, stay and take uh, public transit home or he'd jump back in the car and, and we'd drive back. And sometimes we'd drop someone off, Carl or Sam, we'd drop them off on the way back across town. And then I'd drop them off at his house and then I'd barrel down 280, you know, alone driving back to Palo Alto. And those were really, you know, those were really special times. And it was interesting when I, when I became a senior in high school, I was, I, I, I was held back a year when, when I went to kindergarten. So I did like a pre-kindergarten thing, which was sort of revolutionary for the time, but I needed it because of, you know, my my personality as a really young kid. And so I was 18 my entire senior year of high school, which meant that I could legally excuse myself from classes. So I legally excused myself from a typing class so that I could leave school after my fifth period class. So I could Dang. leave at like one one ten. And then so I could get to Mikey's by like two which meant that we just would always have plenty of time to film. And then the weekends were a different story on the weekends. When I drove up to his house, I think this is all the like meaty fun stuff you want to hear. It's like, I would stop at Kentucky fried chicken and get him the sandwiches from the little, uh, chicken bite sandwiches. They had sandwiches. Yeah. yeah, They had like uh, sliders or whatever. Yeah, exactly. were (laughs) Little tiny sliders. And he loved those. They had little bits of mayonnaise on them. And I would go and pick those up for him and then then again, wait on the couch. And that wait would be even longer on weekends because, you know, he would just just be like still waking up or just getting ready or, you know, having some personal time in the room before we left.
2: So on a, on a day-to-day basis, was there a yeah. sense that, you know, what these guys, i.e. like Mike, Henry, Gervonta, everyone else, what they were doing was really special, like that they were basically creating the vocabulary of skateboarding as we know it.
1: I think it's like, it's always the case, right? That when you look back, it becomes clear Yeah, and th- that's true. I think that, I think there was a level of pride and camaraderie that said that without saying it out loud, right? Like, I think just the fact that Mike and Henry prim- you know, primarily, you know, and then, and obviously Javante and Rick and, you know, so many people who all forget to name, but you know mike and henry's kind of like competitive drive with each other which was which was a healthy competitive drive i think made everyone like really proud of it and and everyone just kind of knew like oh this is the shit you know but no one ever said like i don't ever remember a conversation where someone was like talking in a way that they were saying that they knew what they were doing was better than what anyone else was doing at all i n- i never remember a vibe like that i just remember dudes wanting to film and dudes doing new stuff every day and 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 that drive being there
0: so building up on that we've read and heard so many stories about skaters coming from all over the world to come and skate EMB to come skate Justin Herman Plaza and it's interesting um I had a actually a very fascinating conversation with Mark Johnson Mm. some years ago it was an Adidas event and he was around and He's a heady guy, and I was just immediately dived into it with him, and it was great fun because we talked about, you know, there's often the comparison people often say it's the Mecca of skateboarding, which I always felt is a little bit weird because, you know, Mecca and Medina are holy cities in Islam, but the the cities of great Islamic learning were Cairo, Baghdad, Damascus, and it feels like, yes, people were paying pilgrimage when they went to EMB, but the thing is, all of the learning, all of the knowledge... Like Jason said, you know, that's the building blocks of modern street skating. And, you know, talking about questionable virtual reality and secondhand smoke, the amazing thing about those three videos is that you really capture, like, it's there. It's not lost to the ages. You're taking all of this knowledge up to that point. It's been distilled and turned into something completely different. So is there any place right now that is giving you the feeling, the vibe, like San Francisco, in the early 1990s. Is there anywhere on this planet that is going to inspire another generation like that? Or is that one of those once in a lifetime joints?
1: I don't know. I, I mean, the first thing that I'll say just because
0: I'd like to just keep the conversation
1: fresh with how I'm feeling is Patrick, when you say those things and you compare, you know, you, you offer the insight into using Mecca versus Cairo or Damascus. Like, I, I think skateboarding is very fortunate to have your intellect to, to shape and to kind of help these conversations in this way. You're too And kind. that was one of the big things. No, but I think it's it's important. Like, take that, you know, hold that. I think it's like, you know, those of us who th- see things kind of clearly, like, it's it's a little bit of our job to, to like, reinforce and help people understand narratives and help people see things in a clearer way. And I, that was one of the big things that I pulled out of being at Stope Sessions was just I felt like, wow, I just really – connected with people who are interested in this in a scholarly way. And it's not highfalutin. It's actually just important to have these conversations and to frame it, right? Because it, it, it wasn't Mecca. It, it, because, like, when you're going to go to Mecca, you're going to be around everyone else and you're sort of all equals. <laughs> you were not all equals, you know, um, in the eyes of the lords at mm-hmm. EMB, you know? So I don't think it was, like, an easy or welcoming place where, like, oh, all of these things were spurned. But I do believe it's a place where, you know, I I have very often said, and when I worked on Waiting for Lightning, I went very deep into this idea of skateboarding as a language and and sort of, you know, uh, uh, words were created in the 70s and then sentences were starting to be created in the 80s and then really in the 90s like a, a full vocabulary was was created and i think like grammar and vocabulary and syntax and all of those things were sort of created and policed at embarcadero but you also have like you know eden gardens in san diego you know you have jarabac you know in san diego different you know you you obviously have you know philly you know, and love and, and, you know, the Brooklyn banks and, and all of these places. But I think that, uh, I think that that place in that time is very specific and unique. I also think skateboarders have a different place in culture today. So that type of creative energy and that type of like essence, I don't know that that exists today simply because of the relationship of skateboarding in the world. You know, like, I, I just think like, you know, you get kicked out of a like, you weren't welcome there. You sat there as long as you could until, when, you know, when the cops decided to bust you, they'd bust you. But then James made friends with the cops, and James was like, I'll police this shit as long as you guys let us do this shit, you know? So there was a, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul and all these things. I, I think, you know, I've thought about this lady because I, I really listen and respect the things that Jim Thiebaud says. And, and Jim alluded to something not being negative about nostalgia because I don't want to take what he said out of context because it's not super fresh in my head, but what I felt from it was like now is now and the past is the past. And it, it, we don't have to live in the past. But it it's rad, but now is now. So let's focus on now. You know, Let's focus on making skateboarding special now and focus on the people who are there now and need our support there now. And as much as I love the nostalgia from the past and I am a super nostalgic person, um, I think that's wired in me from, from my own childhood. I think it's great to be able to reframe these things and see these things and know, like, it's okay to say that EMB was a moment in time that will never be replicated. And that doesn't mean it's better, but I think it's, it's, it's important to say it was a moment in time that will never be replicated. I just simply don't know that the alchemy of all of these kids from broken homes, all these kids with trauma, uh, the, the country, the AIDS, San Francisco politics, like that ain't, it's not the exact same thing that's happening now. What's happening now is different. So I just, I think things are different. Once so, again, a long answer. <laughs> to a no, that
0: was brilliant. And actually you, you touched upon something interesting too. Um, and speaking about your friend, Andrew Huberman, and I actually really admire both you and Jason for the work that you do to talk about mental health and exercise and really being mindful yeah. Uh, especially on the pod, Jason, is, I think, has done a stand-up job over the last few months, um, especially an episode yeah. that he hosted a few months ago. And I guess I, I wonder, uh, that's something that hasn't really been, or I think you were really one of the people who talked quite openly about it, and this is probably pre-epically later. You know, you, you mentioned a lot of kids coming from broken homes, uh, coming up at a time, um, you know, it was the peak of the crack era, the AIDS epidemic yeah. was full bore and really yeah. coming down hard not just in the city of San Francisco but the entire bay area never mind the world. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I wonder, you know, where is a space now where skateboarders are now speaking more openly about addiction, yeah. about substance abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess I wonder is there a message out there for the kids, you know, the kids who 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 still do feel left out, who still are trying to find their way and still rightfully feel despondent about a really challenging, difficult world. Cuz yeah. I know there's a lot of people who view skateboarding as as a release and outlet, which is all good, well and good, but it's not, it's not the only thing. And I guess I would, I would love to hear both you and Jason talking about how you've you know, gone through that journey, You know, how many of us have gone through that journey. But I think you two in particular have really made it a point to, to, to really be service-positive role models about that growth and not just just leaning on your creativity or on your skateboarding, but really emphasizing on being like a whole person and with all the good and the bad that comes with it.
1: I mean, I, I think in an aspect of that is doing work on yourself, you know, and, and I, I, I suffered childhood trauma. I was, uh, you know, I was abused between the ages of five and seven sexually, and I'm very open about it. You know, people that know me and are close to me know those things. And I don't ever want to say it for sympathy because, you know, I'm not trying to claim it, but it's important to, to, to help put these things in your own narrative so that people can actually see how a life can be successful or how you can develop your own sense of self and awareness. And I think the, the magic bullet for me, it was Mike Ternaski because Mike had this ability to see the trauma in all these kids that were around him. And I want to only speak for myself in this, in, in this, you know, discussion, but Mike saw something in me and, you know, the spider of, effect of that was was very, uh, very um, clear to him. Like he saw these fractures in these places. He saw my need for affirmation. He saw my constantly, you know, making other people happy or doing these things and doing that. And in a way, what you see is someone who's very eager, who, who could be a very great student if you point them in a direction. But what Mike did is he just sort of really saw that I needed that comforting and that I needed that sense of purpose. And then he gave it to me, you know? And I, and and then, you know, the the tragedy of, of, of my mentorship time with Mike is that he passes away, which is a huge, another trauma. But what it did is it just pushed me in a direction to go to therapy and do work on myself and begin to understand who I was. But one of the, the great sort of beauties of my story uh, for me, how I see it, how I see it as beautiful, is I really see, you know, what skateboarding did to nourish this darkness inside of me, and, and and I really kind of like adore that young Jake who was awkward, who was, you know, who, who wanted everyone to like him, and and I w- I'm finally able, you know, and I and I've been able for quite some time to 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 reframe that, but it changes that my view of that era. Because I see that so much of this amazing stuff that happened, I I feel like there was trauma and there was pain right around it and right inside of it. And I had this thing that I was tethered that I gave myself completely to. And part of the reason we give ourselves completely to things is to extinguish, you know, and push down these other things inside of us. But I think one of my goals and I've been working on my own book about this time and all my photographs and my stories is just kind of unpacking in the right way with the right audience on my terms, you know, coming to grips and understanding like how something as dark as this kind of propelled me through something that gave me all this life experience that gave me these intangible memories and these, these amazing experiences in order to confront myself and become a, you know, a more whole person today.
2: Yeah, to uh, that, that's a good question. Well, just about, you know, being a whole person, there's this Instagram, I guess it's just like a photo of some text that I think Jenkum posted that's been circulating. Basically, it's about how, you know, skateboarding is autodidactic, like you teach yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And at first, like, you suck. You can't kickflip, you can't ollie, you can't ollie up a curb. It takes like a long-ass time to even be like halfway confident. But if you if you learn how to teach yourself stuff, that's like the most viable skill you can have. So, you know, you can transfer that to, this is basically what the post said, but it's mm-hmm. what I think anyway, like, for example, you can, you can teach yourself, you know, teach yourself how to lift, you know, the same that you're going to suck at first, but it's just transferring the same skill set or the same mindset really to whatever new thing you're doing. It, it applies to like, you know, recovery, like getting like taking a new job, like if you have a new job, you don't know anyone, it sucks. But you know, you keep going in, and put your head down or whatever. So that's kind of how skating kind of has helped me like being more like it would work on myself, like Jacob said, and just kind of use that shit in different avenues. Like like you might not you might lose your pop or whatever, yep. you might you might lose a few tricks or a lot of tricks, but you can still use that same kind of uh frame in, in different avenues.
1: And I, I think, Jason, what what you're talking about—that's also really important to underline—is that, like, even though I can't do that trick that I see someone else do, I understand what it's like to do a trick. Oh yeah. So the ability to relate to your peers and also to relate to incredible things is sort of exponentially magnified, you know. So, but I but I do think that what you're talking about is is having this innate ability that's inside of ourselves that's like ingrained into understanding that failure is a part of success. But I also think skateboarding has been in many ways severely limiting in terms of people's emotional growth. I think you're starting to see some of this stuff unfortunately and you know you have kids who you know miss a whole part of their development because they're chasing this passion you know and, and you see these things with professional athletes, you see these things with young child stars. And it really is akin to that world, you know, people being praised and worshipped for having a skill. And then if that skill diminishes to very slippery slope, you know, with self value at that point, if that's the thing that's defined you, and you're not mature enough to, to be able to differentiate between how and why people are reacting or responding
0: to you. Wow, just, I mean, first of all, thank you both for being so vulnerable and and being so open. And I think that that's something that's really important. And also maybe to the credit of a lot of the folks in your generation, uh, Jacob, that there's a lot of folks who've who've grown up and have have been not just open about some of the challenges they've experienced, but also have provided us with a lot of perspective. A lot of kids growing up in either broken homes or were latchkey kids. And, you know, it's such a wildly different lifestyle compared to, say, children now who have helicopter parents, or the other extreme is it's either helicopter parents or the parents are, they're working two and three Shibu. jobs. You know, there's not this yeah. there's, there's not this middle ground that a lot of people, you as age have, and, you know, for me, it was, you know, a little combination of both. My parents both worked a lot, but we spend a lot of yeah. family time together. And I also grew up with a pretty sizable, you know, Ugandan community that also helped raise me. A lot of aunties, uncles, close friends. Anyway, besides the point, it's cool to see skateboarding having this moment. And I definitely want to talk about the trilogy, the plan B trilogy. Yeah. But there's also, yeah. I mean, I, I mean there, there's also something I've seen is, in terms of great American inventions, there's some parallels in what's been happening in the NBA, in basketball, along mm-hmm. with skateboarding. The, the, you know, basketball has grown up a lot since we were all teenagers. Um, and Absolutely. certainly since the late 90s, early 2000s, when shit was wild. People, are, people have chilled, really chilled out, to be honest. And I guess, you know, something that's like a big question mark is you've watched skateboarding expand and contract and contract and then expand Mm -hmm. and expand and contract. And it's starting to feel like we're in another phase of contraction, you know, especially with the news about Dwindle and a lot of other companies, you know, wondering, you know, how are we going to keep the lights on? And, you know, I guess like how did you like how did you weather that, especially because, you know. You know, painting a portrait of the early to mid-90s, the American economy was in a troubled place. There was a recession triggered by the first Gulf War, the industry, the skateboard industry. Yeah, there were some companies that were balling, but a lot of other companies were suffering and, you know, new, you know, new projects, new ventures were opening and closing within the space of a year. And it feels like that, that tumult is, is, is back. And how did you navigate that?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I want to be careful in how I, I, you know, frame that time for me in skateboarding and, and even being um, on the side and watching skateboarding today. When Mike Tarnaski died, after we made virtual reality in 1993, I basically went to, because I didn't graduate high school, because I had so many excused absences, I went to community college to get my graduation, to get my diploma, and then I applied to go to film school. And Mike and I had agreed that I was going to go to film school to learn craft, and then we would make movies together, and that was the plan. We'd make the snowboard videos in the summer, and we'd make the skateboard videos in the winter, and that was that was our plan moving forward. And of course, those plans, you know, changed when Mike passed away. It was in 1994, just about 29 years ago. Next week, and I really was not in skateboarding after I finished um, secondhand smoke. I went to film school in Boston. I did a couple 411 parts for some friends that I really liked, Panama Dan and Will Harmon. And then I really just kind of stayed on the periphery and st- stayed friends with the people that I was friends with. And it wasn't really until 2007 when Mikey and I kind of reconnected and mended you know, what was a damaged relationship that was still very meaningful that I sort of got back into the flow and sort of understood you know, what was going on in the world of skateboarding. But I, I really sit on the periphery today, I watch and consume and support and follow and love, you know, all the things that I see. And I have sort of, you know, dime store opinions about things, but I in no way weathered anything. You know, I I was in high school, right? So I was a guest in my parents' house, you know, when skateboarding bottomed out in the early 90s. And then I was damn fortunate enough to work for Plan B. So I also took photos for No Way magazine. So I was scraping by and I wasn't really you know, affected by it. And I worked for the top company at the time. So I think what I've witnessed is just the, the you know, the cyclical nature of things. And anyone, my old friends that I talk to, you know, from, you know,
0: the,
1: the Steve Douglases of the world. You know, Damon Way. You know, um, friends of mine to this day. You know, where you have a little bit of insight and people that understand the markets. You know, it's just it does work in cycles. And I also think like skateboarding. You know, prides itself on being disorganized, and then it you know shuns organization. So then people become overly organized, and then you know skate shops don't carry certain brands, and then things are political, and people are taste makers, and that. And it's just like skateboarding is not clean. that way and that's a point of pride for so much of the community which is fair but also if you want something to survive and be healthy you know you kind of have to figure out a way to do it one of the great conversations you know that we were privy to at at stoke sessions was just that idea you know about healthcare um and skateboarding and minimum wage you know or a fair wage right and filmers i mean to this day i still think filmers have been some of the most underpaid people in in the culture because at the end of the day you know the skaters are skating, but filmers are out there every day doing it. And a lot of times they don't get treated the best from the riders and from people around, but they're committed to it. And there's something, you know, deep inside of them that keeps them compelled to do it. But a lot of filmers and people that I know in skateboarding now are having to do other things, you know, and I always welcome those conversations with filmers, no matter what generation they are. And they say, Hey, how did you, how did you navigate getting out of skateboarding and making a career for yourself? And it was like, you know, it kind of, it's kind of it was the same way I navigated a career in skateboarding in the first place. I just kind of chased a passion and just relentlessly tack, went after it. The same thing that Jason was talking about, that tenacity that develops. But I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, and I'm not an expert enough to say, you know, where are things going and how you weather it other than make sound decisions and follow your passions. And I, I feel like when you put your heart into things, and if you can express with your heart, then people feel that. And I think that feeling is one of the most important things. And, uh, and in a way, that's you know, probably why certain brands have been incredibly successful. You know, why has Girl been so successful for so long? And I think it's because they embody a feeling. There is a particular feeling that they're a little bit of Powell and they're a little bit of Plan B, and then they're themselves. You know? and, and that creates a feeling that people like to feel. So I think that cultivating a feeling and having your brand have a feeling is really important. And you look at smart people who understand that and know how to communicate a feeling, which is really hard, and they tend, but they tend to be successful.
0: And speaking of feeling, we got to dive into it. Questionable <laughs> virtual reality, which by the way, virtual reality has yeah. the greatest intro of any <laughs> skate video ever, yeah. ever. I love, I love. It's the triple screen and the Aussie. And... Yes, yeah, I'm just favorite. gonna start. Actually, yeah. no, I'm yeah. like Jason. I, I, yeah. I'm gushing right now, Jason. I'm gonna let you go first as we we dive into the trilogy.
2: Oh, the um, the triple screen squi- the triple screen. Oh, damn. Well, I remember. Yeah, the first time I saw, it I got the video. Yeah, the classic board, Richmond, Virginia. Uh, rest in peace. That shop went over to my friend Seb's house and uh, yeah, put it on. I was like, what is this the tri- triple screen? I was like, yeah, I was like, this must be the most advanced technology ever. Like. Because back yeah. then it was like you know Rocco, like from our perspective, Rocco was like a billionaire, right? Right. Like we re- like when we were, like fourteen or whatever, like we really thought yeah. World Industries was like a worldwide like super big yeah, company. Yeah,
1: he, he sold it. Yep.
2: He's you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, it was like just some um some like office building with a warehouse and some office park, yep. you know, down by the airport. Great
1: advertising. Yeah. Yeah,
2: which was pretty funny, but um. Along those lines, back to, you know, filmers and that kind of thing, you and Socrates Leal were the main filmers for um, World back then. And did y'all ever like collaborate when you went down there, like in in the editing bay or whatever?
1: There's, there's a couple interesting overlaps, but, you know, I never really filmed for World, like as a World employee. You know, Plan B was a, a totally different office in San Diego that was really right. close to Mike Ternaski's house, which was down near where the 8th Street house was, you know, in Poway down in San Diego. So when I started filming for Plan B, Socrates was, was starting to film a little bit of Rodney around that same time. And the primary world filmers would be Socrates and Tim Dowling. Tim Dowling just a touch later, just a little bit. But at that time, there was so much expansion so quickly. But like, you know, I don't like I don't remember Socrates that much in 91. I remember Socrates a lot in 92 and then 93 and and so forth. But the summer of 92, Mike Ternaski made Love Child. So Mike Ternaski, you know, Patrick, the music buff that you are, Mike made that video that summer after he finished questionable. Um, and there's some of my footage in that because there's some of those guys that I filmed up at Embarcadero, but Socrates and I never like specifically collaborated on anything other than I would see him there all the time. And just, he had an incredible work ethic and incredible attitude. And he's just like blue collar slayer. You know, he would just be there super reliable, really great guy. And I know that the Los Angeles skate community has really been making an effort to connect with him and kind of bolster his story and, you know, celebrate,
0: you know, his his career arc and his journey. There is like there's two videos from the 1990s that if they didn't exist, Palace would not be with us. And that's <laughs> Rhythms Genesis because of the yeah. use of a lot of uh, big beat and yeah. techno and Trilogy because of the fits, yeah. the vibe. The, the technology, the editing style. And I mean Socrates is is, is an absolute legend and yeah. you know, should yeah. be so and, and and you know, to your point yeah. about filmers, filmers I, I think filmers are getting a bit more shine now. And certainly Bill Stroback, who polarizing as he yeah. may be to some fans, has really to some he he's some. but he's an auteur, tour, you know? And, and you know he, very simple
1: <laughs> But he, but he's doing what um, what I was talking about earlier, which is communicating a feeling. And, like, I just can tell you that I've never watched one of Bill's videos and not felt something. And, like, the other thing that Bill does that I think he doesn't get a lot of credit for is he really supports these kids. He really finds them. He really gets them and puts them in a place. He sees things in them that other people don't. And I I, kind of don't care about the conversation that people have on the periphery of not loving what he does, because I just look at him and I go, that's the same cloth as Mike Janowski. He saw something in someone. He pushed them. He was there every day. He was filming them. He was giving them a chance. He was believing in them. And then he presented them in a way that was authentic to who they were. And, it, and people fell in love with them. Oh, and absolutely. that was how I was taught to be a filmer. And so, and, and a filmmaker is, you know, film, filmer, filmmaker, you know, film editor, skate videographer, whatever it was we called ourselves back then. But you had to love the skater and you had to want to capture their essence. And I just think Bill does that.
0: And, and something that Bill does as well, you know, he talks, he's talked about this in a few interviews is he's in it for the long haul. Yeah. He has the stories he's told about just slogging. I mean, really all over the world. Yeah. Initially, yeah. back when he was doing photosynthesis you know and yeah. uh, his uh i think his his ex-girlfriend his now ex-girlfriend hooked yeah. him up with a i think she hooked him up with a van and she, he was staying at her dorm like he was he could have been out there doing his own thing and being a wild boy but instead he actually no i think it was workshop it was alien that got him the van and yeah. he was logging the miles and everything like that and being very very disciplined in a space where shit could have could have and did go crazy on a regular yeah. basis and you know with to the point about feeling, I mean that's the thing that virtual reality gives me because I saw that in yeah. probably '97. I was an early adopter to wow, okay, okay. To, to skateboard message groups, so yeah, yeah. you know I was able to find people who would trade tapes, and they would send me, you know, I'd send them a blank tape, and they send me a bunch of videos. And I remember sharing virtual reality with friends, and the impact because yeah. the first of the three I saw was was secondhand smoke, and you graciously right. autographed uh, my copy of it, and. The thing I I adore about that video, as well as, actually of all three, is that the music supervision creates, it's almost like a symphony. It's in different parts (laughs) and acts. I mean, especially, for example, for example, in virtual reality, going from the hyper sentimentality of, with a little help from my friends, for the blind section, and then going straight up into into a casual joint, then followed by Rick James. I mean, that's, I mean, that to me, I mean, I hang out with a lot of music supervisors here in LA and that is art. I mean, you were doing stuff that didn't happen in regular TV and movies up until (laughs) like the early aughts. So I'm talking like,
1: but it did. I mean, Scorsese, you know, look, I'm in no way putting us in a category of Scorsese when I say this, but like the inspiration is there all around you. Like, Good Goodfellas was what 90, 91 so that predates. That Festival, that's Scorsese. That's
0: one dude. That, this wasn't happening on regular TV. You know, but <laughs>
2: it's yeah, the I same. Wish. It's the same thing though. Like he'll he'll take like a rolling old Rolling Stone yes. song
1: or whatever, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. and yeah. juxtapose it with this or that or Layla yeah. or whatever. It's kind of
1: the same. Yeah, thing. I mean, uh, uh, you know, a love song when someone's getting murdered, you know, yeah. which is akin to Rodney Mullen, you know, skating to Louis Armstrong, right? It's highly technical skateboarding, but it makes sense. I think that you know mike Ternowski deserves the lion's share of the credit you know for 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 how that music stuff came together you know he had we we literally used to go to the warehouse right that's that old music place the warehouse and we would literally get a shopping cart and we would just grab the greatest hits from all these bands and we'd dump it in there and, and no lie we would go to warehouse when we were starting to get into the pre-edit stage of the video and we would just Leave with like fifty CDs, and then and a lot of those CDs would be the Billboard Top Ten or like Casey Kasem's Top Ten of that year. So
0: I'm trying to remember the uh Donny Osmond song. Um, <laughs> one, but you know one what? bad apple. Yeah. One bad apple doesn't spoil it. It's like basically, it's like it's like a Costco version of the Jackson Five. Wait,
2: yeah. I, I was I was gonna say like I bet that's how they got that Osmond that Donny Osmond song. Yeah, it's like you know, and, <laughs> it's, <laughs>
1: and it's like. So, but a lot of that research was done around questionable. And then when Mike and I were making virtual, we, you know, went in and got even more, you know, music. And what I was doing was making a mixtape of all the music that I would leave in my car while I was driving from San Diego to San Francisco. So I would have all these mixtapes with Stevie wonder and, you know, Steve Miller and all, and you know, all of these different reference points. And, and the goal of what you're doing is to feel who the skater is and, and then have this reference point of the music. And sometimes the skaters are going to tell you like what they're into. Right. And then you're going to, then it's going to be easier from that standpoint. But oftentimes, like I think, you know, with Rick James, we just knew that it felt right. And um, when I cut Rick's part, initially it was a different rick james song that i don't remember the name of but then it became you know give it to me and uh it just ended up being the right thing so i think a lot of it has to do with knowing who the skaters are being open to all this music and seeing it at a different elevation you know like I love the fact that, you know, Sal Barbier is a black skateboarder and skating to Dell, the funky homo sapien, a black rapper, singing a very specific song about that, (laughs) unquestionable. Whereas everything prior to that, you know, except for Ron Allen's life video, you know, was punk rock and like, you know, white people making music. So I think that when you lean into what's in front of you and, and not try to conform to someone else's idea, but to really draft off of how you see it, I think it becomes it, it finds itself, and for me, when I was making secondhand smoke, imagine that I, you know, am now, you know, at Mike's condo, and all of the CDs and all of the music that we ever listened to for questionable is just right there for me. Right. So, so I, I'm like going back to the lab and saying, hmm, "What do I use here? What? Do I, oh, we always wanted to use Stevie Wonder. Um, we always wanted to use the Yes Band because I think that." opening track from secondhand smoke was in consideration for virtual reality because it had that doo-doo-doo-doo-doo, doo-doo-doo-doo-doo, doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. and it was like that was the vibe you know but when we did the opening of, of virtual reality we we had we had the premiere of questionable in our head and we just remember how fucked up people were and we just were like what if we just fucking do a split screen and then we just we felt like that was Yes, that's the fu- let's fucking do that and just fuck people up. And then it's like, no, let's just do the fucking triple screen. And then Ozzy, the crowd in the background, we-, we loved Carmina Barona, right? Which is what's playing underneath that because we always wanted to actually use Carmina Barona, which is the I forget the the lyrics of that song, but it's like dun 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 dun, dun, dun. and we had wanted to use that in a part. But it just never felt right. And that came from not the new Eight Street video with Mike using, you know, all of this classical music juxtaposed against skateboarding. So when the Aussie track had Carmina Barona in the intro with the crowd yelling, it was like, this is this is going to fuck people up. And that's all we wanted to do was we were like we we knew we made a great video the first time out but it was like this video has to just punch people in the face and they have to just want to just re- stop and rewind and go back and then put all the Easter eggs in there and
0: all that stuff. Which all of us did. <laughs> yeah, like you,
2: like you went back and like, all right, now I'm going to watch the upper left. Yes. Now the upper right, then the yeah. bottom. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But um, along those same lines, music supervision, like with the whole hieroglyphics thing, like those, those guys are still packing them in. Yes thirty years thirty years later, yes. all around the world behind yes, you know being in in your videos, which is a trip but um it's my understanding that Giovante that whole connection was via him like he knew those guys or something
1: yeah Dell Dell and Giovante sort of like dabbled in the rave you know scene together and kind of knew each other and uh, you know Dell's record we had all kind of heard it and then of course, when the eye examination came out. You know, it was sort of this, you know, massive revelation of expression. Like eye examination sounded like nothing we'd ever heard before in hip hop. And then Dell would give Javante this Souls of Mischief tape. And it was basically the Souls demo that had a cab fare, which is the Bob James taxi sample. And no one had heard that before. So Javante had that tape, gave it to Mike Carroll. I stole it from Mike Carroll to make my copy. So like the trick remember how i said mikey always put his tapes to play them in the car yeah, yeah. I, the trick would always be and i did this shit consciously to turn the music down before we got to his house so that hopefully he forgot that he left the tape in the car and then i'd be like all right bro i'll see you later and would leave and there's nothing he could do That's and so then i would take the tape and i'd dub it did you dub the tape no of course not you know <laughs> but i have my dubs and so and i've, I've been working on a hieroglyphics project with all of this stuff and all these stories and stuff.
0: so that explains like for example for tony ferguson's part in virtual reality mm-hmm. where there's crazy tape hiss yeah, on yeah, that that's... on that track i mean also i mean like low-key i i wonder if um granted i, I don't know if you all did uh, had a royalty or a payment structure for any of the music and i'm sure nothing was cleared but i mean <laughs> no, think nothing's of, cleared think about how many of us skaters all over the world yeah when we hear 93 Till Infinity, when we hear something by oh, Casual, yeah. when we hear anything by Hiro, we're immediately transported yeah. to a skate video, and how many people became yeah. fans just yeah. because. Just because. And yeah. the wild thing is, they got dropped. They all got dropped at the same time yeah, from story. Elektra. It's a
1: crazy story. Yeah.
0: Um, and Jive, yeah. Yeah. Like, they, they all got yeah. dropped at the same time, and were still, actually, were actually yeah. probably more relevant by the end of the decade, because that was an era where a lot of rap yeah. groups... A lot of rap groups got dropped en masse, yeah. uh, partially because of the Ice-T backlash from Cop Killer, yeah. and also just yeah. um, you know, anti-blackness is a hell well, of a drug.
1: T- yeah, that's exactly right. And they didn't, know how to, they didn't know how to market it. They didn't know how to have conversations about it. The thing that's beautiful, and, and I've been revisiting my, that relationship with Hiro and, and those guys as artists, it's, it is exactly the same as street skating at EMB. It is exactly the same. Like, it is, it is a new vocabulary. It is a fresh expression. It is the kids who are doing it themselves. And they, like, come from very deep-rooted places in the music, right? The references are super deep. The jazz samples that they're sampling are crazy, incredible jazz samples. You know, Ramsey Lewis stuff, like, this really good stuff. But the lyrically and this that expression was just, like, similar, this exact same as guys leaving vert ramps, you know, there's no more like bars the way that regular hip hop was once that happened. You know, you think of Hyro and Far Side and that new movement; it it really changed everything um, and kind of made you made made hip hop really kind of exciting, right? Because there was a piece of it that felt like really fresh and really new. But it was like we we didn't we didn't pay for any of that music. We probably would have gotten our balls sued off if 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 they weren't on VHS or if they were like sold in like you know big stores, but. but- it's, it's great to know that, you know, people fell in love with it and found it for themselves, right? It wasn't like, oh, we're the reason that they like that music. It's like, no, the, the music is good. Like the music is the reason they like the
0: music. It just was
1: in harmony with the skateboarding. So it was even more appealing.
0: Exactly. And it feels kind of like you probably would, uh, you'd probably, it's probably more likely that you would incur the wrath of uh, Sharon Osbourne than you would the Beatles, if only because the late George Harrison's son, uh, Danny, he skates. Yeah, he's a
1: skate fan. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. he's, he's a, yeah. a total skate rat. I mean, he had the Bones yeah. Brigade over at his house, you know, to watch the 1990 World Cup sure. final, which is insane. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. But besides the point, like, it just shows that that music supervision is, is so important. But let's bring the
1: conversation full circle. And this is the reason why we have no preservation for video. Because technically, it would, you know, sort of be illegal to duplicate and sell any of these videos because none of the music is licensed so they all have to be sort of like curated from an educational standpoint and that's one of the things that i'm really passionate about and i've engaged with betsy a little bit she has some ideas and and my hope would be that we could you know create some sort of a living archive of all the skateboard videos have have a place where we could have scholarly scholarly discussions about the videos not be afraid of um, having a library that showcases, you know, ignorance and greatness of skateboarding, you know, so so that it can be studied and it can be looked at. Because I think there's a lot of value in, in the way the language of skateboard videos, you know, have been cultivated and creative and created. And you know, that that's a conversation for, for another time. But I think there's a real value in, in preserving that and finding a place. And I think it is gonna have to be like an educational backstop that allows us to host or, or share those videos so that you can see it and,
0: and see them. And mostly, more importantly, like to an earlier point that we talked about, you know, these are, they're taste bombs, as you said. They are, yes. you yeah. know, yeah. It, it, is, it is a window into what was cool at a yes. certain moment. And especially yeah. for, you know, like skateboarding is, the Smithsonian is correct in saying that skateboarding is American cultural patrimony, like this yeah. is something that yes. this yeah. something yeah. surprisingly cool and not fucked up that this country made that we can all like for real, for real be proud of. I mean, yeah. And also speaking of another uh, piece of American cultural patrimony, I know we're we're coming up on time, but we can't there talk to we can't talk to Jacob Rosenberg without talking about some basketball. <laughs> I mean, come on. Oh it's it's, it's, oh, it's, the N- it's the NBA playoffs right now. How wait, are you wait, feeling? Hold, up. Before, hold on, hold <laughs> on.
2: Before, before we switch gears to um, the Warriors, Jacob, I got to ask you. Yeah, Here's The legend was that Steve Rocco had a safe or a vault or something with hours and hours and hours of footage of everyone, like all the guys that split for yeah. girl and right. all that shit. Is this
1: true? I've never seen a vault, but, you know um, – I know that there have been many companies that have been purchased by other companies and the contents of closets that contain tapes are not perceived to have value. So I know a handful of stories of places being cleaned out and tapes being thrown away. Uh I also know a lot of filmers who look out for each other and will grab tapes and, and share tapes and do that. So you know, I know there were tapes at Dwindle. I believe that I have the majority of my tapes back, um, which I've, I could tell you some crazy stories about how I've procured some tapes. And cr- they're incredible stories. They're crazy, baffling, mind-blowing. But I've, like, come into possession of seven tapes that were mine that I hadn't seen in 30 years. Oh, shit. You know, one, one of them had, you know, Danny and Colin's 360-flip mute grabs at the Richmond ramp for virtual reality. So, but I, I've never heard of like a vault or anything. The reality is Tim Dowling has a lot of his tapes. Uh, Mesa has a lot of his tapes. Socrates has a lot of his tapes, but some of those companies just go, Oh, those are our tapes. The reality is, is I don't think a lot of these filmers had like literal signed contracts,
2: right. which means
1: legally they have no right to like hold those tapes. So it's, it's a very weird slippery slope to try to, to try to unpack that stuff, but you just got to, you know, I think you got to do the due diligence to try to check that stuff down. I've found that it, it, it's been infinitely rewarding to redigitize that stuff. And I have so many hundreds of hours of material and I really look forward to sharing that, you know, with people when I can kind of, I have a sense of how I want to do it, but you know, and then I have a trusted, a very trusted friend who understands the culture who has a duplicate hard drive of, of nice. all my stuff. And if something were to happen to me, like he knows that I want people to see that and don't want it just hidden away.
0: See, Jacob is prepared for the future. But once again, God, this has been amazing. But I got to ask you. I, actually, I got to ask yeah, both yeah. of you. How are y'all feeling about the playoffs right now?
2: Oh, I'm, I'm locked in. Who's your it. team? Uh, well, I'm a Wizards fan, technically. Yeah, so, uh, like, I was yeah, kind of rooting yeah. for the
0: Kings. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, of but now,
2: like, I don't know, Denver? It would be cool if Denver did well. Yeah, yeah. I think they're pretty rad, pretty high octane.
0: Nick's tape over here. Nick's tape. I hope
1: hope for you. I mean, I love. I mean, Jalen Brunson playing 48 minutes last night was insane, incredible. Jimmy Butler has just been incredible to witness. I I think you know the, the only thing as a as a diehard Warriors fan watching them this entire season, what what you really come to understand is like the Warriors really benefited from having like role playing veterans historically for every one of their runs, and what that means is that the veteran knows their role, doesn't give a shit about minutes. They don't give a shit about anything. They're just like, I will do whatever I can to help this team win. And a lot of their youth were won a championship last year. And it felt it didn't feel as hard as it did for the veterans of the team, but it didn't feel too hard. It felt like, oh yeah, we're that good. And the reality is 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 it requires a lot more patience. It requires a lot more poise. And what you're seeing with the Warriors now is a very, very young bench that struggles to rise to the occasion when there's even more pressure because there wasn't any pressure last year from the standpoint of we had nothing to lose. Like no one fucking except the real fans, the, the real fans of us are like, if Steph and clay are healthy, we have a chance no matter what. And, uh, you know, this year, we, we just have to have more depth and we have to have more role players. And, and we've just been seeing that inconsistency, but, you know, pick it up G2, the way he played last night shows you how valuable it was to grab him in the offseason. But, you know, the, the Warriors gave away game four. That was heartbreaking. I went to that game.
2: No um, shit.
1: I was there. And, you know, my, my EP at the commercial company that I direct for is a Celtics fan. And he loves the Warriors. And I've directed a lot of commercials with LeBron. So there's like a, a history and an excitement with going to see a lebron Steph playoff game. And, um, you know, the Warriors were really successful in the first half with pick and rolls with Steph. And Gary Payton was really great defensively in the first half. And then in the fourth quarter and in the third quarter, they went away from the pick and roll and the pick and roll was working for them. And so the Warriors just, they just have these weird little blips where if they're locked in and they actually do execute the game plan, they will win those games. But if they don't, it's like a real slippery slope. And it's just, it's just been a hard year to be as diehard of a fan.
2: Do you think that, you know, regardless of how the playoffs play out, do you think that they should trade Draymond and or Clay in the offseason?
1: I'm of the belief that those core three are capable of miraculous basketball. And as long as they have uh, role players who understand how to facilitate our offense, they, they need to stay. One of the reasons I've been such a diehard fan this year and why it's been such a tough year as a fan is because I really don't want to have said I didn't maximize witnessing that greatness of that trio. Right. And so, I mean, my son and I have probably watched on league Pass 70 Warriors games this year, aside from watching every game of the playoffs. And it's been a tough year to be a Warriors fan. Um, and not to be a Warriors fan who's like just shitting on them every day and saying, Oh, trade Jordan pool. And you know, all the knee jerk stuff. But it's like, if you really love your team and you really know how they play, you know, you're just seeing us like, we're really just have a lot of lapses but then you see us you know to go to seven games with the kings and the kings i think are probably one of the most talented teams in the playoffs this year they're certainly the most they were the most exciting team but i don't think you break up that core i, I think you have you know you signed uh gp2 so you have him you have uh moses moody you have patrick baldwin jr you know you got andrew wiggins i mean we still we have on contract currently you know the only one draymond's not contract clay we have our last year but he doesn't have a player option so you know they'll want to do an extension but you know our starting five except draymond is is locked in for next year right right and then and then you have like another four players who are who are still locked in so i, I just think i don't know so many people hate us which is okay <laughs> well like,
2: you, you, like yeah. you you've probably been a fan since like run tmc you know, oh, yeah. like, uh, I mean, Baron, I, Baron Davis, when they, they were horrible.
1: Like they were a joke. Oh, yeah. I, I was a partial. See, this is funny. After I made a little bit of money with Plan B, after I finished virtual reality, I went uh, that next year, 1993, 94. I had a little bit of money. I was working for Sega, doing some stuff and applying for college. I got, I shared season tickets with my cousin. And that was when we drafted Chris Weber. And so I watched, you know, went to all those games, you know, at that stadium at the Coliseum back then. And then we just was horrible. You know, Right, Don Nelson was obsessed with drafting big man and it was just it was the death of us. Right. But who would have thought that it was all about going small? But, you know, we had Andrew Bogut, you know, we've had David West. We've had great big men who, who like knew, you know, what to do. But what an exciting you know, generation to, to love basketball. Right. You know,
0: it's just yeah, such man. an
1: exciting thing to watch when the refs get out of the way. I
0: know, and that's something that we can all be stoked on as basketball fans, which brings us to the part of the show where we talk about what we're stoked on. Jacob, what are you stoked on this week?
1: I I took a couple notes of some things that I was stoked on, you know, from the skateboarding world, but when I was driving over here, I I was listening to probably one of my favorite podcasts, which is uh, You Must Remember This, which is a a film history, a a critical film history podcast by Karina Longworth. Um, you know, she's a very scholarly film historian, and it's all about, you know, 20th century Hollywood stories. And she's currently she did a series called Erotic 80s about sex in movies and how sex is portrayed. And it's a real critical look at, like, the development of how, you know, masculinity, femininity and all these tropes and these things were you know cultivated and expressed in this visual language that we consume at a high rate. And she just did erotic 90s so I'm like halfway through an episode of that but I think to draft off of how I like to think about things and and look at skateboarding in that critical way you know looking at film in that way is really incredible and that's you must remember this but from a skate video standpoint I mean the most recent shit that I watched that I love was the you know the take a lap Mason Silva part I loved it and then I just really liked feels like spring you know the GX 1000 video I thought was just fucking incredible felt so real and present jason what are you stoked on right now
2: well uh we talked about venture lore today on the podcast so once again stoked on venture trucks uh as a video game liaison on this podcast stoked on Warzone ranked mode which is basically like a more like competitive type of thing uh with, like progression system and all that stuff basically you have like more skin in the game so to speak, uh, late on this one, but stoked on a video from Charlotte, North Carolina called Avenue from a crew called 5301 and the Black Sheep Skate Shop. Uh, appears to be an abundance of spots down there just uh, five hours away. I have to go down there one day and uh, stoked on a recent edit with Hard Body and Dancer, uh, Yalte, Yalberg's brand. Just, you know, some Copenhagen stuff, some New York stuff. Pretty sick. Patrick, what are you stoked on this week?
0: So this week, of course, I'm stoked on Spitfire Wheels, but I'm also really stoked on meeting Sam Narvaez at the JIT premiere. That was the the new weekend video that premiered this past weekend up in Highland Park. Uh, it was madness. Great, 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 great fun. A shout out to the homie Kevin Horn for getting me in. Been feeling Rage Against have the been. Machine this week. I, I don't really know why. Just just have been. And, of course, the Knicks, Knicks tape. I hope we don't bottle Still it. Alive. Still alive. Still alive. So I hope we don't bottle it. Um, and then Can finally, ask, what, Real Madrid. <laughs> Jacob, please go ahead.
1: No, no, no. I'm taking my daughter to her first show on Saturday. And uh, in, in the fall, I asked her, I said, what do you want your first show to be? Because she was, she was getting close to wanting to go to a concert. And She said, you know, Papa, I think it should be Future Islands because I've been listening to you listen to them for so long and she loves them. And we are going to Future Islands for her first show on Saturday at uh, the, what is it? Uh, Just Like Heaven Festival.
0: Oh, there that you is. Go. That's so awesome. And shout out to Future Islands uh, who I think originally from North Carolina, but they really yeah, right. originally, really came into their own in, in Baltimore and they used to come and play Washington, DC a lot. Um, back when I was living there. And actually really regret uh, we I think we missed an opportunity to open for them, but we were double booked. Anyway, that's what I'm stoked on. Harlem Madrid, shout out to the Knicks. And that's it for our show this week. So please be sure to check the MostlySkateboarding.net website for links and other show notes, and there will be plenty. Until then, you can keep up with us online. Jacob, where can the people find you on Bobby Digital's internet?
1: Uh, I have my primary uh, IG account, which is at Jacob Rosenberg. And then uh, I have my archive account, which I just kind of leave out there for people to discover because it's fun when you do. And it's just at thatwas.now. And then uh, if you really want some deep cuts, you can go to my website, which is just jacobrosenberg.tv. And if you explore around, you might find some fun stuff if you're a skate nerd. Jason, where can the people find you?
2: On the Twitter, at Carbonite1994. On the Instagram, at frozen And uh, writing stuff for quarterstacks.com. Working on some stuff for a quarter, is it? Yeah, probably third quarter. Patrick, where can the people find you?
0: You can find me on Twitter under the handle at Colonel K Speaks. That's Colonel like the military rank, not the popcorn colonel. On Instagram at and also doing stuff with the Harold Hunter Foundation. That's all for our show. Take care, y'all. Be safe. And thank you, Jacob. Thank
1: you guys so much. Really, it's so lovely to have these, you know, meaningful and deep conversations about things we care about. Thank you guys for doing what you do. Beautiful!